The first weapon I ever held was my mother's hand. I was a small child then, soft at the belly. On that night, my mother woke me and led me out to the Carolina woods, deep, deep into the murmuring trees, black with the sun's leaving. The bones in her fingers, blades in sheaths, but I did not know this yet. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest books on the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Barbara. And I'm Brian. Today, we're reviewing Let Us Descend by Jesmond Ward on the New York Times hardcover fiction list for two weeks in November of 2023, peaking at number five. And it's the current Oprah Book Club pick. And the winner of our bestie for best opening line of 2023. An award we gave out just a couple episodes ago. And just last episode, we counted down the top 10 best-selling bestsellers of 2023 and awarded the bestie for our favorite book of last year, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. One of the things we noticed from that countdown was out of the 10 best-selling novels of last year, Seven of them had been celebrity book club picks. Which is kind of amazing since there are only four celebrity book clubs. Oprah, the original, started way back in 1996 as a segment in her talk show and then rebooted as an online club in 2012. Then the next was... Reese's Book Club started in 2017 as part of her media company, Reese Witherspoon's media company, Hello Sunshine. Quickly after that, we got Read with Jenna in March of 2019, Part of the Today Show, hosted by Jenna Hager, one of the daughters of the 43rd U.S. President, George W. Bush. And the last of the big four, the TMA Book Club. Because Good Morning America couldn't let the Today Show have all the fun. I think GMA has the worst name of the four. Not much flair there. What would you suggest? I don't know. How about We Pick the Best Books Club or All the Other Suck It Picking Books Club? Um, that's a little judgy, maybe a little confrontational. Okay, I'll work on it. So out of the top 10 best-selling hardcover fiction books last year, seven came from Celebrity Book Club picks, which is pretty impressive considering how many book club picks were there last year? Well, there were 41, 12 each from Reese, Jenna, and GMA, you know, one a month, and five from Oprah, who seems to name a new book club pick irregularly whenever the mood strikes her. Her club, her rules. Yeah, and of those 41 picks, 38 were novels, two memoirs, and one was a self-help book. How many of the 38 novels made the New York Times bestseller list? 19 made the list. Exactly half. So all of Oprah's picks made the weekly bestseller list, and three out of the four were in the top 10 of the year. Yeah, don't mess with Oprah. People trust her judgment. Well, that's what I wanted to check this year. Whether people trust her? No, we already know that. I I saw a survey where she was like one of the top two trusted people in America. Oh, wow. We already know that Oprah is trusted. I wanted to know whether the trust is warranted. Ah. Not just for Oprah, but for all four of the clubs, since they clearly have a strong influence on what people are buying and reading. And talking about. Yes. But you're not sure that people should be buying and reading. And talking about. These books. Well, I lived in Missouri for six years, you know. Um, that's a random non sequitur out of left field. <laughs> and that's a redundancy. No. <laughs> don't you know the state motto of Missouri? Yeah, I don't know. We got the arch and you don't? <laughs> Unless you're McDonald's. No. <laughs> Missouri is known as the show me state. It's printed right there on the license plates. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. So what does it mean to you? It means show me the money. Show me the proof. <laughs> I'm not just going to believe you on your word. 
I have a feeling you were a skeptic long before you moved to Missouri. Well, maybe so. But Missouri made me realize it was something you could be proud of and show off on a license plate. You don't trust that the big four book clubs know how to pick good books? Look, I'm willing to believe it when I see it for myself. Show me the money. Show me the arches. <laughs> Plus, aren't you interested in which clubs pick the best books? That could be useful. So what's the plan? Last year, we focused on number one bestsellers, and we successfully read and reviewed all but one of those. We still have to review Rebecca Yaris's Iron Flame. Which we will get to very soon. But one, other than that one... One of us has read that. But this year, I suggest we focus not on number one bestsellers, but bestsellers that are celebrity book club picks. Got it. Are you in? Yeah, I'm in. Because that way, by the end of the year, we'll be able to say which clubs pick good books. And which pick the very best books. Exactly. So let's start. What do we know about today's author? So Jasmine Ward was born on April 1st, 1977 in Delisle, Mississippi. She's an English professor at Tulane, author of four novels and three works of nonfiction. Two of her novels won the National Book Award, making her the only woman to win this award twice and the only African-American writer to win it twice. So Salvage the Bones, her second novel, won the National Book Award in 2011. It's the story of an African-American family in Mississippi coping with Hurricane Katrina. Mm. And then Sing, Unburied Sing, from 2017, also won the National Book Award. It focuses on a family in the fictional town of Bois Sauvage, Mississippi, and explores themes of race relations, human-animal relations, songs and singing, parenting, and the afterlife of slavery in America. Mm. And it's her first book to introduce supernatural elements into the story, which we also find in Let Us Descend. She has two children, and the family lives in Mississippi. She lost her 33-year-old husband, the father of her children, to acute respiratory distress syndrome in early 2020. She writes about that in a powerful and poignant Vanity Fair piece called On Witness and Respair. Yeah, now she doesn't say that her husband died of COVID in that piece. and In fact, he wasn't diagnosed with it. Nobody was in January 2020. But from her description in the article, it sounds very much like he was one of the very early victims of that disease as the pandemic started to move across the U.S. in early 2020. So she wrote Let Us Descend, the story of a young woman's struggles during slave times in the southern United States. During the same year, she was grieving the loss of her husband, pandemic lockdowns were everywhere, and the racial justice protest movement triggered by the George Floyd killing was just taking off. Yeah, there was a lot going on that year. Let's talk about this book, Let Us Descend. It was published by Scribner, 320 pages, has about a 90% female readership. The audiobook is eight hours and 12 minutes. And guess what? Read by the author herself. Yes. Yeah, this was the Oprah Book Club selection for October of 2023. Still her current pick because she hasn't selected a new one as yet. She'll get to it. It spent two weeks on the New York Times list at number five on November 12th, 2023, then at number eight the following week. But what did you think of the audiobook? I thought the audiobook was great. It was There was such a poetic voice, and the story itself is written so poetically. And at one point, I remember wondering, how did this reader know exactly what the author wanted in terms of the sound in certain parts? And then I realized, oh, yeah, the author is reading it. So that's how she knows. So when you started the audiobook, you didn't know that. I did not know that. You know, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I, I did listen to, you know, the audio examples that we're using. And I think her reading is great. I do too. Really, really helps. So what about the story? The book is set in the time before slavery is abolished in the United States. The main character, Annis, is in the Carolinas, enslaved within the same household as her mother. 
Her father is the sire of the house, so Annis is of mixed race and has a slightly lighter complexion and finer hair than some of the others in bondage there. And she's reached the age where the sire is turning his sexual interest in her direction. And at the beginning of the book, she's desperately trying to figure out how to stay out of his sight and out of his grasp. Now, he's got two daughters by his wife, and in the narration, Annis calls them her sisters, though they are not acknowledged as such by anyone in the house. When Annis is doing her various household tasks, she can hear her white half-sisters taking lessons with their tutor, and she listens in. This is important because the book is drawing frequent parallels between Annis's life and the Italian epic poem The Inferno, which is the 14th century classic in which the author Dante is taken on a tour of hell, guided by the ancient Latin poet Virgil. In fact, the title of the book, Let Us Descend, is taken from that text. Annis remembers quite a bit of the Inferno, having overheard it as translated out loud by the tutor to his students. Right. And in the opening, we see Annis's mother regularly sneaking her out into the woods before sunrise to teach her how to fight, like hand-to-hand and with weapons such as sticks and knives. These are skills that Annis's mother learned from her mother, Annis's grandmother, called Mama Aza. In Africa, Mama Aza had been part of a contingent of female soldiers charged with protecting the king. When Mama Aza was caught in a sexual relationship with one of the king's male sentries, apparently illegal because all the king's female warriors were considered his brides, the two were punished by being sold into slavery. Early in the book, Annis's mother is sold off the plantation. This is devastating to Annis, and in her grief, she takes solace in the affection of another young woman enslaved there, her friend Safi. When Annis and Safi are discovered in an embrace, they are also sold off, and Annis's descent begins. Yeah. And the book follows Annis as she is forcibly marched down to the slave market in New Orleans, sold, and then put to work on a Louisiana sugar plantation. Throughout this time, she's in frequent communication with a number of spirits that are trying to help her or perhaps trying to get something from her. And a major theme of the book is Annis working out how she should relate to these spirits as she struggles to protect herself, or maybe even free herself from the hell that is race-based chattel slavery in the antebellum South. That's a summary of the story. Let's talk about what we thought of the book. And our first category of review, as usual, is grip and grab. So let me just say that this is not an easy subject to read or to listen to, but it's so important for everyone to hear. Mm. And it's terrible to consider what our ancestors have done to people of color. Having said that, you would think that grab and grip would be low simply because of the subject matter and the human suffering encountered in the stories. You want out. Get me out of this hell. Yeah, I sympathize and empathize, but I but how do I force myself to to go there and yet I gave it a four grab and grip were strong it's a statement or a testament to the superb writing in this story because she is able to grab us and hold us in her grip and keep us pulled into this story and it has elements of other stories about enslaved people but it has a lot of unique elements that rather surprisingly help with the absorption of this book and keeps you coming back for more you really can't put it down I had no trouble with grip and grab either. It was a compelling story. And I'll just point out a couple of things. Her storytelling in this is, for me, refreshingly straightforward. There were no time shifts. Like it was, this is what happens at point A. This is what happens at point B. And here's how she got from one to the other. Now, she does fill in a lot of background about her mother and her grandmother. But that's all through memory. Mm-hmm. So the story is quite straightforward. And it keeps, it kept me engaged. 
uh, it's an inherently gripping story because this young woman loses her mother and then is sold into the sugar-producing economy of the South. There's also this additional drama that I got pulled into, which is her relationship to the spirit world. Yes. That was quite dramatic. It wasn't anything so simple as the spirit helps her or the spirit tells her what to do. There's a lot of stress over, can she trust these spirits? Yes. Should she do what they want from her? I'll just give an audio example here um, that I think fits into Grip Grab. This is the, this is when she's still on her march down south with other men and women. They're tied together. And the further they go into the south, the more they have to cross rivers. And some of them are quite deep, like life-threateningly deep. And they don't necessarily take the bindings off of them as they're forced to cross on foot. The water is dark as the night, and it burns everywhere. The bubbles tickle up my cheeks over my scalp, and when I close my eyes, I can imagine it's my mama's hand all over me, closing me up, cradling my whole body. Sometimes after our monthly sparring sessions, we'd settle into sleep and she'd run her fingers over my scalp with a touch as light as this, as caring as this, and for one moment, I want to open my mouth wide, want to let the air stream from me, from my chest, want to breathe in this wet caress and let it take me down, down to the black bottom. I would never have to walk no more. My little one, Mama would say. She'd speak so softly, it was nothing but a breath in my ear. You gonna fly in your dreams? Where you gonna go? To the woods, Mama, I'd say. And what next, Therese, she'd say, coaxing a story from me. I wonder if I die in this moment, if I could stay in this memory. Yeah, that's a powerful example, I think. Yes, absolutely. And so, you can hear her writing style as well as uh, some of the story elements. Yes. So I also gave a four to Grab and Grip. She got flair. Her writing style. What would you think? So I just thought her writing was exceptional. I thought every sentence, like when you look, when you think about, well, what's an example of flair? I mean, you just, it, almost every sentence, mm-hmm. I just felt like it was all a big long poem. And one of the examples that I wanted to read takes place when she is when Annis is in the slave pens and she is having an encounter with her the spirit with the Isa. Isa saying to her, only those who foretell would have known that your people who were thrown overboard, who leapt overboard, who sank to the bottom of the ocean, would become one with the deep, and after that sinking that they would sing only they would know that your people's voices would rise from the deep, that their spirits would rise like water bubbling to air in the heat of the sun. It's just... I know. The whole uh, book is like that. It's yeah. one of the amazing things about her flair in this book for me, and I haven't read her other books, but I'm inclined to now, I'll tell mm-hmm. you that, is how she could balance the artistry of the language with keeping the story moving. Her prose is always at a very high level. I'll give my own example. This is uh, after she's been bought down in Louisiana and she's on a sugar plantation. The husband, the father of the household, comes in and she describes him. The husband's cheeks wax, round as corn cakes, red washed with fat. He curls over her, meaning his wife. He curls over her and engulfs her, eating up any shadow left in the glowing room with his gold-threaded vest his hair springing out over his head in a big blonde curl. The round pork of his shoulders fill the space. He is as showy as a robin. His wife, the small bird, flutters around him. So there's another example. It's, it, 
every page is like that. Yeah. And I also gave her credit uh, for Flair for the the way that she connected it with Dante's Inferno. That was yes. really well done and compelling. Yes. That's set out right from the beginning that she's listening to the tutor through the door. And, and I'll just quote it. The tutor says, let us descend, the poet now began, and enter this blind world. And his words echo through me. But instead of the Italian poet descending into hell, I see my mother toiling in the hell of this house. Mm-hmm. So that connection is is run throughout and it's it's really effective and interesting. Yes. And I will say that after I read Let Us Descend, I read, well, listen to Dante's Inferno. I had not read the that. whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> I powered through it. I liked this book a lot better. Like after you finished the novel? After I finished the novel. Okay. Yeah. It's really well done. So I gave I gave her Flair a five. I gave her Flair a five. Five out of five. Yep. Our next category is Beam Me Up. This is world building. So I was beamed up and transported to this world. And I mean, this is a world that I've pictured many times in other stories. But in this story, with this exceptional writing, I was able to inhabit the world and feel the injustice, the misery, the inhumanity, while at the same time remaining engaged and intrigued about the interaction between Annis and the spirit that she's encountered. It's almost like the only way to cope with this horrible, inhumane world is to have these spirit interactions that oh, okay. Annis has. And that is also what made it possible to stay engaged and to have some like if you have no hope at all when you're reading a story like this it's really hard to keep going but that wasn't the case so i i was able to inhabit this world and be there with annis Um, yeah I, i was i was there too when i score this category i'm not saying i wanted to be in that world right right i'm saying i believed that i was or could be right that she she created a literary world that i thought represented this part of American history, I could picture myself there. And I did believe that it corresponded to what happened, okay? Because you're constantly reading a book like this and you're comparing to what you already know of slavery and learning some new things. I'll play an audio clip here as well, our second audio example. This this is uh, a description of of them working in the field. So this is after she's down in in, uh, New Orleans, well, outside of it, wherever that sugar plantation is. Now, she's not working in the fields herself yet, that comes later. She's working in the house mainly, but part of her job is carrying water back and forth. And she just describes what she sees as people work in these sugar fields. I drink more water and eye Esther's sharp collarbone, thin as a paring knife. I look at the long line of Mary's neck, and I know all of them is starving. We work anyhow. We fold and lift and haul and darn and light and rip and set. On our trips back and forth to the well, to the river, we bring water to the fields where the people are bent over the sugar cane. It already looks taller than it was yesterday, shooting skyward under the late flush of summer. I have never seen fields spread so far, and I have never seen so many people bending to work in them. Their backs curved and dark as a scuttle of beetles, the air redolent with manure. Older people and children are weeding the fields, wading through ankle-deep mud. No one looks up to the blue expanse where Aza floats and watches with her arms aloft, setting the leaves of the trees to clapping. She blows a breeze, pulling sweat from studded skin. All of the workers in the field are bare to her touch because most of the men work without shirts. 
Even some of the women have only a cloth bound over their chests, tied around their necks. Some of the children who run water to those in the fields are naked. So I I found that compelling and believable, and I felt like the author, you know, she knows what she's talking about. She's done her research, um, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of describing what people went through back then, what it was really like. Yes. I gave it a four. I didn't give it a five because there were a few, not very many, but a few places where it did come a little bit disjointed for me, took me out of the world a bit. Mm. A few places. One of them was her recitation of Dante. By her, I mean Annas, or Annas, as you've been saying it, mm-hmm. the uh, the main character. So the setup was a little a little difficult for me to to picture or accept. Like there's a lot of of citing a lot of reciting of Dante throughout the book that just made me wonder like what did she just like park herself outside the door like how did she hear all of it there's no indication that she was ever taught that she's literate this is all from overhearing one little or two descriptions of her overhearing these lessons so I got caught up in how did she hear that much and then it got worse and we got I got curious about what English translation was the tutor using and I I'm sorry but I noticed that the same line was recited differently twice as if there were two different English translations. That was a little weird. There's one place where the she says, the tutor's voice sounds in my head, I am the way into the city of woe. And then later in the book, she says, through me, you go to the grief-wrecked city. I spit the Italian's words vomiting from me. That's the same line. Those are two different translations. Oh. So then it became even more puzzling, like, what was going on with this tutor and what was going on with her? So that pulled me out of the world a little bit. Hmm. Another example, a big part of the story is that she learned how to forage in Carolina. Her mother taught her, and, and her mother learned from her mother. And guess where her mother learned it? From a native that they were trading with. They picked up skills of how to find edible plants, how to distinguish poisonous mushrooms from edible ones from the hallucinogenic ones, right? That becomes a very important part of the story when she's in uh, Louisiana. But what's weird is she just goes out into the woods to find some medicine for the sire of the house. And there's no indication that like it's a different flora or fauna. And that kind of threw me. Like I thought those skills were specific to region and ecosystem and that sort of thing. Did you have any thought about that? Yeah, so I had some thoughts about both. So I'll take the the flora oh, and both. fauna first. The, the so for me it didn't bother me because they started in the Carolinas and then they went to to Louisiana and from if you look at the map of the United States there that's the same essentially the same band of climate so the same plants are going to thrive in both areas for the most part. Um, is so that this, your computer that just bleeped? It is. I don't. Sh- I'm not sure your computer agrees with your point, but go on. I am going to make sure <laughs> it doesn't get to say anything else. There we go. Then the other. So that didn't bother me at all, and I actually thought of it. I'm like, oh well, they're still in the south, so it's going to be fine. Oh, so you thought of it and you were fine with it. Yeah. Okay. Good. And then the other, I didn't realize. I mean, I hadn't read Dante's Inferno before I read this book, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize there were various different translations. So I didn't pick up that that was actually the same line from different translations. But I just assumed that the tutor was translating it for them. And also, like, I know that she can't just park herself out there. But I do know that if she's listening intently, and Mm -hmm. she hears something, she's gonna think about that, she's gonna repeat it, it's gonna echo in her head, because she's hungry to learn something like that. Well, my hope is that there's some really great deep explanation for this, 
we're supposed to figure out as readers. That would be a very sort of literate way to approach it. But it could also just be a mistake or a shortcoming. I'm not sure which. I would have to read the book a second time. And the last thing that jumped out at me a little bit in terms of the world building was the the use of English the speech of the people that are enslaved is always in the vernacular whenever the, their actual quotes, including Annas's speech. Yes. The, the language of the narration, which is in Annas's persona, okay, is always in standard English. In fact, I would go further and say it's English professor standard, like a lot of um, what most people consider abstruse vocabulary. We heard one earlier, redolent detritus, you know. So there's a bumping up of the vernacular in the speech and the voice that Annis is using to narrate the story. And I noticed that right from the beginning, and I was actually fine with that as like sort of an artistic choice by the author, although I noticed some of the reviewers on Amazon didn't like that. Mm. I thought it was natural that, you know, nobody really talks the way that the book is written. Mm you know, who actually speaks in the way that their mind works on the inside. Very few. Um, so you didn't have any trouble with didn't, that? Didn't bother me one bit. I did notice it, but it didn't bother me. Did it bother you? No, that's the that's the thing. I, I'm mentioning it because some of the reviewers gotcha. picked it up, but I can't explain it. I can't explain why Annis, when she describes things that are not in quotes, she uses uh, very, what you might call high language. And when she speaks, she uses low. But well, as a book, it worked for me. Well, and it actually, it actually for me, was a little bit of a positive thing because it sort of connected the author with the character. It's yeah. like I could hear both voices yeah. in the story. And I think that's important because the name of the book is Let Us Descend. Yeah. And, of course, the author is not only a novelist and a memoirist, but she's written some poetry. And in the Dante piece, it's the poet, Virgil, right. that's the guide. So I, I was taking it as all, all that sort of connected. The author is the guide, and we can hear her voice in the as well as Annis's. Yeah. So that's I, how I took it. That makes sense to me. Let me just say one more thing that this Annis character it, in the way that she grew up and the lack of education, she wouldn't have any experience with speaking to any kind of group or to other people in any way other than the that sort of common vernacular that that would be very natural and there yeah. wouldn't be any other way for her to speak, I guess, and out loud. And the other thing is when you enter a book world, you you figure out within whatever 10, 20 pages, okay, this is how this book is set up. And then the question becomes consistency. And she was quite consistent throughout. Whenever she quoted anybody speaking, they used vernacular. Yeah. And whenever there, the narration was happening, it was that great pro style that we've already talked about. Sometimes she mixes them, but not often. Here's, a, here's an example where the narration is white men wearing floppy hats, coax horses down rutted roads turned to shell-lined avenues. White women with their heads covered usher children below awnings and through tall, ornate doorways. And everywhere, us stolen. Yeah. So you've got the narration in standard English, and then all of a sudden, us stolen. Yeah. That actually worked for me because yeah. it was infrequent. And it's like, oh, the two, the two voices, the author and the, and the narrator, the, the main character, are sort of mixing there a little bit. Yeah, I like that. So what did we end up giving for... Beam Me Up, Beam me I up. gave it a four. So did I. All right. Good scores. Yeah. New Best Friends. This is about the characters. What do you think? Yeah, so, oh gosh, I think that um, Annas is such a strong character. I would have loved to have become friends with her, to have fed her a big 
hearty bowl of soup and listen to her stories like it makes me want to cry. She's so strong and endearing and fierce and lonely. I had no trouble spending time with her and hearing her story. And it's sort of interesting to me that in a people in time, when those who were enslaved had no actual power, this heroine shows us how powerful mm. she is in her cunning and her determination to live. Just living her life is heroic under these conditions. And she shows how powerful she is as the story unfolds. And then those who had power are so low. Yeah. They're less human than the people they were enslaving. That drew me in quite strongly as well. The The resilience, you know, she's she's at her, the point of giving up many times. In fact, we saw that in the river scene where she's like, should I just float to the bottom and, and end it all? That's how dire the circumstances are. And not only that, but separated from her mother and how desolate she is from that. And from her lover, right. Safi, she finds ways to, to cope and to survive and even to find liberation. I'll just give one example of that that was very striking to me. Once she gets to New Orleans, she's put in one of these pens, and then they parade various possible buyers past them. They bring them out on the street every day. And it becomes clear that they're looking, each buyer is looking for a type of laborer, somebody for the field, somebody for the house. But some of them are looking for what they call fancy girls. That's the term, you know, for sexual use. And she sort of gets labeled for that, maybe because of how she looks. Um, she's still young, and she's biracial. Do you remember how she fends that off? It was kind of remarkable. Yeah, she lets them know that she understands mushrooms. <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. It is. Because if she understands mushrooms, she can go out and find a poisonous one, and then you're dead. You can never trust her. <laughs> and she used that. I'm like, wow, that's resourceful. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's appealing about her is she's kind. Yeah. She helps people regularly throughout the book. And in fact, everybody that she interacts with who's enslaved is also kind and helpful. I do want to say that, you know, from my limited reading of colonialism and slavery and various systems of oppression, one of the effects of systematic oppression is it's harder to be kind. It's harder to be good. What this author does not do is show people who are so broken by slavery that they become completely self-centered or just totally broken in that way. So she chooses not to do that. And that could be said to be a little lack of realism, um, but certainly in terms of dramatically getting pulled into the characters and the story, it works. Yeah. Now, there was um, a character that Annis did not entirely trust, and I thought it was courageous that she dared to not trust the spirit she was having interactions mm. with. And I thought that was very, it was, it was brilliant, actually. Well, that's another part of the characters in this book is the spirits, and they were interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm best friends with them, but I would say I believe that they're, they're fully wrought personalities. Yeah. So I gave this category a four. I gave I, it a four. And I had no trouble with the, the white enslavers being shown to be <laughs> less than, yeah. you know. As they were. Paragons of virtue. They right. were all disgusting. really sad, disgusting yeah. examples. I had no trouble with that. So that was New Best Friends. Our next category, number five, is all the feels. This is kind of where we wrap it all together. Did you have emotional reactions to this book? I did. Um, I gave this category a four. I thought... I, did, I didn't cry a lot, but I did mm. cry in the story. And it takes a lot for a story to crack me into crying yeah. 
these days. There wasn't a lot of laughter, but there was a lot of suspense and drama as the action intensified, especially toward the end. I did have an emotional reaction frequently. Yeah, I did too. I I marked it like I started doing and I need some better emojis because all my they all look the same. Pretty. <laughs> what are they? But I, it's just it's either a person with two dots for eyes and and a little frown or a little smile. Oh, that's all you got. <laughs> that's all I know how to <laughs> it's draw. But in fact, I had more than one. Like, you know, I had feelings of desolation about the mother-child bond. Like yeah. this is the one of the main focuses emotionally of this book. Yes, is how Annis experiences the loss of her mother and how mothers experience the loss of their children. And that's a very important focus because one of the tropes back in slave times was these black people who are enslaved, they don't feel it very much. That's oh, just disgusting. That was part of the heinous. ideology, and it still I'm... needs to be confronted. And she does, if nothing else, this book puts that to rest. It's yeah. like intense and pervasive. So I felt that. Mm. I felt the agony of Annis's choices when she's close to giving up. Do you remember the, the, the choice she had to make when the mother of the household in Louisiana, the, the father gets sick with fever, and she's sent out into the woods yeah. to find curatives. And she's out there, and she's like, I could find poisonous mushrooms. There's some right here. And here's what would happen to us. If, <laughs> so she's facing real life and death choices, and I'm, I'm like right there with her. Mm. And I have to say I felt anger. I've read enough about slavery to not be surprised by too much that was in the book, but I, I will say the sort of pervasiveness of the sexual abuse was a little bit eye-opening. That reminded me of Bonnie Garmus's book last yeah. year, that the, the, the intensity and the regularity of the sexual harassment in the workplace in the 1950s and 60s, well, this was the intense and unrelenting sexual attention of these white men towards whatever enslaved black woman they felt like. Right. So I felt that, and I felt the anger, and, and I felt guilt. Mm. I wrote it in the margin. I, I'm like, I don't know why I feel guilty, because I didn't do this. Yeah. But I do feel guilty. I just noted it. Mm. But that's different than shame. Remember, I, I mentioned that because this whole Republican movement, that we don't want kids reading this stuff because we don't want them to be ashamed of being white. Yeah. I didn't feel ashamed. Yeah. I felt guilty. Guilty as in something very wrong was done. Yes. For a long time. Yes. So I gave this category a four. Lots of strong feelings throughout. Yeah. I gave I gave it a four as well. So before we wrap up the episode, we have decided to add one new category. This is a bonus. Like right now, if you just look at all of our scores, this book comes out a four point two, which is a good score. It's higher yes. than most of the books we've read. Yeah, it is. But I noticed last year that some of the novels make you think. Some of them don't. And there's nothing wrong with a novel that doesn't make you think. We are all about uh, beach reads and airport fiction. Sure. I mean, some of the reason that that you read the book is so that you stop thinking. (laughs) Right. And I have nothing against a book like that. But I do feel like that minority of bestsellers that does make you think about yourself, about literature, about the world. Yeah deserve some extra credit for that. So we're going to have a sixth category that is anywhere from zero to half of a star. And if a book made us think, we're going to reward it. So right now we're at a 4.2, but we're going to talk about whether this book gets any bonus points for made you think. What about you? So I immediately, as soon as you said we get to use that category with this book, because we talked about doing it, Mm -hmm. and I gave it a 4.5 because it just... 
it makes you confront what has happened and yeah. what was and what still affects what is because it is so powerfully connected to the history of this country and how we continue to struggle with how should we be now and what can we do to alleviate or you know all of that right it it, it was just because it was such an important story that's why I gave it a 4.5 so i gave it a 3.5 and we're going to split the difference and say 4 which means it's going to get an added 0.4 ha- four-tenths of a star. But let me explain why. The, the title itself is an in- invitation, mm. Let Us Descend. Mm. So the question is immediate, why? Why shouldn't I just read the latest you know, romance or mystery that's purely escapist? Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's so important. Yeah. And there's also, in this moment, remember she wrote this book during the George Floyd racial justice movement. Well, we all know what happened after that intense backlash like I haven't seen in my life. Mm. And it's not over yet. And and the work is we're going to stop kids from reading about these things. And we're going to get rid of DEI. We're going to get rid of affirmative action. And we're really, really pushing back. But the part about the censorship, about stopping the stories, is what's so relevant here. How can we understand our past and how it affects the present and the future if we don't have these stories? Right. I happen to be looking at a book by Deborah Miranda called Bad Indians, a Tribal Memoir. Mm. And she starts right out with this sentence. Stories are all we have, Leslie Silco tells us. And it is true. Human beings have no other way of knowing that we exist or what we have survived except through the vehicle of story. Wow. So this is an important book about let's think about what happened and why we need to keep sharing these stories. Yeah. The other thing that's that really made me think in this book, maybe even more than that, was the spiritual questions. It was almost like stunning how yeah. the, the spirit world kept appearing to her, but not in any of the ways that I'm used to seeing. Like none of them were fully trustworthy. None of them were altruistic. So she was constantly in this position of who do I trust and what do I do? Right. So that raises all kinds of questions about the role of the spiritual in these matters of liberation and survival. And then lastly, of course, there's a model of liberation in the book. The book is about not just descending, but also rising. And we're not going to give away the end because we don't do that. But that made me think. It didn't necessarily make me agree because the model that's presented in the book is super individualistic. Okay, Annis is rescuing herself. You know, that doesn't go very far for freeing the nation. So I'm not saying that it was satisfying for me, but it did make me think. Yeah. And it certainly works dramatically, at least in my opinion. So so we're going to add 0.4 stars to this, which brings the final score to 4.7. Nice. No, I added that wrong. 4.6. That's what I thought. 4.2 and then an extra 0.4. Okay, so we score Let Us Descend at 4.6, and it is scoring at 4.0 right now on Amazon, 3.76 on Goodreads, 3.96 on Storygraph for a composite social media score of 3.9. So are you saying that we're scoring it higher than all of those other outlets? It's one of the rare books that ended up like that. (laughs) But that's why we do the show. That's why. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next episode when we give an overview of the 10 new hardcover fiction books that made the bestseller list in January of this year. An overview, not a review. Until then, keep dreaming, keep flying. Keep laughing, keep crying.
and don't stop until you've read them all. Oh, did I name it?